The reality of this world is it's fallen. And a fallen world is not categorized by unending happiness and blessing. We live in a suffering world. Yes, there are some joys, but probably over the past week or so, we can kind of see just how dark the world really is. Especially for believers, the world hates us because they hate our God. How will we respond to suffering? In the midst of this life, as we face tragedy and we face trials and testing and suffering, how will we respond? We need a framework that we can use through our times of suffering. We need to understand who God is and who we are. What we believe about God will be pushed out of us through our trials. The temptation is to respond like the world responds. This isn't fair. I deserve to be happy. Just keep thinking positively. Or you can respond like Christ with unwavering trust in his father. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. I hope this is uh, an encouragement. Um, These verses have been an encouragement to me uh, recently. The most difficult part of Psalm 102 is figuring out its historical context, figuring out why and when it was written. There's lots of ideas. Um, Could be a Davidic Psalm uh, meant to offer up uh, petition, repentance, those types of things. That's how the early church used it. Um, Could be possibly two Psalms. There seems to be a a big break there. Maybe they took two Psalms and then when the Psalter was put together, it got edited together. Um, The most convincing, I think, um, and there's a lot of different ideas about this, but I think it was probably written by a Jewish person during the time of the exile. So authorship is unknown, but this is someone who's devoutly following the Lord, who sees rightly the state that Israel is in, the trouble that's come upon the nation, the trouble that the author feels in his own soul, longing for the promise, longing for the land, longing to be restored as a people to their rightful kingdom. Someone following the Lord. Verse one is clear, he's in distress. He's groaning about their state of captivity. Many Jews uh, towards the end of the exile period actually didn't want to go back to Israel. They actually wanted to stay in Babylon because they had created for themselves somewhat of a comfortable life, somewhat of a community and a a place of belonging. But this author, this person realizes rightly the, the tragedy that has come about them. He realizes they're not where they belong. Think of the desires of a Nehemiah or an Ezra to bring the people back to the land and to restore it. Verse 13 suggests um, the author calls upon the Lord to act. 
Um, he says, now is the time to act. The Lord look on Zion with uh, favor. Think of the coming end of the promised judgment that soon there'll be a time we know God will restore his people. This person's looking forward to that. So I think that's possibly where it is written. Thankfully, though, the meaning is pretty clear. Someone suffering through deep trials can trust in the Lord to fulfill his promises. Someone suffering through deep trials can trust in the Lord to fulfill his promises. It's a psalm of lament. Often this is a difficult thing in our culture. Like I said before, our world tends to respond with, we just want happiness. We just want to think positively. We don't spend much time in psalms of lament. It follows that pattern, starts with an introduction. Then the author offers up his complaint. Then there's an affirmation of truth and a final conclusion of trust in the Lord. Look at verses one and two. We'll read those together. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. This is clearly a person following the Lord because they bring their problem to the Lord. They're calling out for answers. They're calling out for help. The setting of the Psalm is in the day of distress. So when the suffering comes upon this person, when the suffering is there in that time, he calls upon the Lord for help. It's the day when he calls, he asks the Lord, do not hide your face from me, but incline your ear. Listen to my complaint, listen to my cry for help. This person is relying and trusting that the Lord will hear his call. Verse three starts with the word for, and then he begins to spill out what the cry is. So there's that introduction request, please hear my prayer for, and then here is the heart of the Psalm. Look at verse three. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down. Grass has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow. On the housetop, All the days of my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and I mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and you have thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like the grass. This first part, um, makes up the complaint of the Psalm. And what we need to see is that saints will experience real suffering. That is those who are following the Lord, those who are truly his servants will experience real suffering. In verses three through five, we see this is a personal type of suffering. He says, my days pass away, my bones burn, my heart is struck down. I've forgotten to eat my bread. This is the the personal section of the complaint. 
Um, this psalm could be taken literal or metaphorical. There's a mix of metaphors that the author has kind of weaved together, different word pictures to help us understand. So my bones burn like a furnace could be a reference to a fever, but then my heart is struck down is the idea that my, my soul is tired. My heart is sick. I don't understand why this is happening. I'm losing the will to move forward. The idea is that anyone can pray this prayer in a time of suffering. Anyone can use these words to call out because of their suffering. What this complaint shows us is that saints and followers of Christ, we are temporal and fleeting. Our days are numbered. He says, they pass away like smoke. We're here one day and we're gone the next. No matter how much we try to hold on to this life, it passes away. And during times of suffering, it almost seems like our days have no meaning to them, that they're here like smoke over a fire and then gone. That our, the time of enjoyment we may feel is, is washed away. That our days lack any type of solidity. They lack any type of meaning or purpose. In times of suffering, we're reminded of our temporalness. We're reminded that our days pass away like smoke. Saints often lose heart or the will to continue. He says, my heart feels struck down like grass. Do any of you know how many blades of grass are on the front lawn out here? No? Why? It doesn't matter. It's grass. No one cares except for Ron. No, I'm just kidding. We do care. It looks nice. But it's grass. I mean, it's the most thoughtless thing you can think of. And during a time of severe suffering, he says, my heart is struck down like grass and is withered. It's here for a season, you know, for like three months in the middle of the year, and then it's dead again. And that's how he feels about his heart. He's suffering so much, he forgets to eat his meals. At the end of verse four, I forget to eat my bread. Have you ever been so hurt by something, so just anguished in your soul that you forget to eat, that you forget um, the sustenance that keeps you moving? His body and his soul groan and break because of the suffering he's experiencing. We also see saints will experience social suffering. Verses six through eight, he expresses a deep feeling of loneliness He says, I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness. The idea is this is social isolation. He's been ostracized by his friends and his peers and his enemies reach out to mock him. Uh, The translation I read says a desert owl. You perhaps have a translation that might say something like um, a pelican or other birds. Um, It's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what that means. Um, but the, or exactly what type of bird it is, but the, the meaning is clear. This is an unclean bird that dwells alone in the desert. You think of the most forsaken, forgotten about place, the desert. And there's nothing there. There's no one around, just some random birds. And this, this author says, I am like one of those birds left alone. The psalmist feels alone in his suffering. Loneliness is a common experience during suffering. The reality is your suffering is your suffering. 
No one else experiences it exactly like you do. No one else understands exactly like you do. No one sees the secret hurt. No one experiences the long nights of loneliness like you do. And to some extent, that is, it is true that suffering is lonely because we do experience our suffering by ourselves. Not only does the psalmist feel alone, but his enemies have taken advantage of the situation and they mock him. Verse eight says, all the days my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. That is, they've taken his name and they've, they've turned it into a curse or they've turned it into a derogatory term for the experience he's going through. These people look on him with loathing and mocking and he feels alone in his suffering. His heart is struck down. He's like a lonely sparrow on a housetop. Saints not only experience social suffering, but we recognize this suffering happens within providence. The suffering ultimately is from the Lord. Look at verse nine. I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of what? Because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. In the midst of his suffering, he still acknowledges God is sovereign. God is in control of this. All my suffering is from the Lord, but it's so difficult and it's so hurt. It hurts so much to be under the indignation, to be under that anger. He feels like it's taken him up and thrown him down. Just when life might seem to be going right, then something else happens. Just when it seems like everything's starting to take a turn, that you've been taken up, you're thrown down again into suffering. He says, my days, they're like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. An evening shadow is here for one second and it's gone the next. Again, the grass metaphor, here for a season and burned up and gone. This is what it feels like to the psalmist to go through suffering. Life is going good. And then all of a sudden, suffering comes and he's struck down and he's hurting. The Lord lifted him up and now has brought him low. The hardships of this life are because of sin. Difficulties, difficulties in relationship, difficulties of of life are because we live in a fallen world. Suffering is an intruder to our world. We need to recognize that much of life is difficult because of this. Much of life is suffering. The reality of hardship and difficulty is a result of sin. The reality of this is part of suffering. We need to be careful trying to parse out what is and is not suffering. The reality is in many of our life circumstances, we experience feelings like this. We experience emotions like this, where we feel lonely. We feel like our heart can't go on, that we can't make another decision, that we can't choose to move forward. The path of suffering is a difficult and lonely one. And the reality is, you might think like, wow, that's kind of low for a Wednesday night prayer meeting. But the reality is, 
life is not all sunshine and rainbows. I think, you know, I think we know that. I think we know suffering is a result of the fall and we should expect it. But how many times is it like, like we feel like the psalmist, right? We've been brought up, but then we get brought down. And we kind of look around like, where did this come from? You know, God, don't, don't you want me to be happy? Don't you want me to enjoy the things of this life? Don't you want me to, to feel connected and loved and experience the joy of living for you? Where did this come from? And we're reminded by James that we should count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because it's part of God's plan to make us like Christ. James says, not if you meet trials, but when you meet trials. Suffering is the reality of this world. We need to know that suffering is a real thing. There's no escaping it. There's no shortcut. There's no getting around it. And frankly, it's not good for us to pretend like we don't suffer. It's not good for us to pretend like there actually isn't suffering in this world. Maybe you find yourself in a prolonged state of singleness and you feel lonely, you desire to be married, but no matter how many articles on the Gospel Coalition you read that glorify singleness, that loneliness feeling is still there. You feel like the psalmist, I'm a desert owl. I lie awake like a lonely sparrow. Maybe you're a young couple trying to provide and make your way in a world and an economy that seems like it's driving itself off the cliff. Maybe you're experiencing some type of other financial difficulty. Maybe you've been recently let go from a job. Maybe you're a young mom who hasn't slept for more than two or three hours at a time. Maybe you have adult children or a friend, a close friend who's walked away from the faith and you've prayed over and over again, but you feel your heart struck down and you forget to eat because of the anguish in your soul. Maybe it's another trip to the hospital, another procedure, another day waiting for test results, not knowing if the cancer is back. Another night spent staring at a hospital room ceiling, praying, Lord, please take this away. And you feel in my soul, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. One author said, the psalmist is like grass, uprooted, cast aside and withering, or like a thing of little account, picked up and examined for a moment but judged of worthlessness and thrown aside. We need to acknowledge suffering is real. Saints in this life really do experience real pain and real suffering. But the Psalm doesn't end there. Look at verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and you will have pity on Zion. 
and it's time, it is time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute. He does not despise their prayer. The first thing we saw is that saints will experience real suffering. The next thing we need to see is that our savior is sovereign. We see our savior is the king, the Lord established and will establish his kingdom on earth again. I said savior, the Psalm doesn't specifically mention Jesus, but look to um, turn to Hebrews chapter one, Hebrews chapter one. And you'll see in verse 10, this is um, the author of Hebrews speaking about Um, He's quoting that Psalm and he's speaking about Jesus. And he says, you Lord laid the foundation of the earth. In the beginning, the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. We see that this Psalm is speaking about our Savior. It's speaking about Jesus and when he will finally establish his kingdom, when he will wipe away suffering, when we will be transformed and be with him and rule and reign on this earth. The psalmist starts in a deep pit of suffering, but he doesn't stay there. He moves to King Jesus, to the hope, to the author and the finisher of his faith. I think this psalm has... Uh, what we would call a near and a far fulfillment. So mentioned, we talked about historical setting at the beginning there. Um, In the historical context, you'll see an Israelite writing this. They're looking forward to the time out of exile. They're looking forward to the time when their people will be taken from Babylon and brought back into the land. And that does happen. But I think ultimately, what really this Psalm is looking forward to is the establishment of the millennial kingdom when Jesus will rule and reign. This has been illustrated this way. Um, if a prophet is looking out at to what's happening, he may see like a mountain range. And from far away, it's hard to tell how much distance is between the peak of each mountain. It looks like they're all close together. So that's why our Psalm is all compacted and close together but there's things it's pointing to that are near and some that are far. Near, an Israelite is looking forward to the establishment of the kingdom in Jerusalem, but further in an ultimate sense, it's fulfilled in Christ in his kingdom when he returns. We see the Lord as king forever. Notice the contrast between us. We fade away, we are temporal, but the Lord is enthroned forever. Nations will fear the Lord, King Jesus will bring all the nations of the earth under his subjugation. He is the mightiest of kings and he will rule the mightiest of nations. And in one sense, the prayer of this Psalm is simply thy kingdom come. Yes, this life is difficult. Yes, there is times of suffering, but ultimately Jesus reigns. Ultimately his kingdom comes. Ultimately, all that suffering will be wiped away. 
Not only is our savior king, he's also the creator. Look towards the end of the Psalm. Look at uh, verse 25. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hand. They perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You change them like a robe. They pass away, but you are the same. Your years have no end. He created the world. Just how big is our God? He laid the mountains in place, the highest mountain, the lowest valley. He puts the stars in heaven. It says the heavens are the work of your hand. Our Lord is eternal forever. He is the sovereign creator, even though the earth will pass away. You know, we think about the earth and we think about mountains in our universe as really the most tangible thing we can see. You know, we don't wake up in the morning wondering if the ground will exist beneath our feet. We just believe that the earth will be here. And in comparison to our God, it says he changes them like a robe. Ladies, maybe you've had this experience. You're getting ready to leave for a party and you try on an outfit and you look in the mirror and you think, not today. And then you put on another outfit and you try again. Around this time, your husband's wondering if everything's okay. And you're like, nope, not that one. Next one. That's the universe to our God. He can change it like a robe change it like a garment. Our God endures forever. Not only does he endure forever, he is eternally the same. He will always be, and he will always be who he is. His character will never change. His nature will never change. This is referred to as God's immutability. The Lord is, always was, and always will be who he is. He will not change his mind. He will not get tired. He will not decide one day to save you and the next cast you aside. He is always steadfast in his purpose and who he is. He's always as loving as he always is. He's always as just as he always is. He is never one degree of love and then the next another. He's never one degree of justice and then the next another. He is all of these things that he is to the utmost that those things could be. He is the highest degree of love because he is love. He's the highest degree of mercy because he is mercy. And those things never change. He's not some amount of love, some amount of mercy. He is those things always the same. One author said this, how cloudy would his blessedness be if it were changeable? How dim his wisdom, if it might be obscured. How feeble it, his power, if it was capable to be sickly and languish. How mercy would lose much of its luster if it could change into wrath. And how justice much of its dread, if it could be turned to mercy. His power is unchangeable. And the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. His mercy and his holiness endure forever. He never could nor never can look upon iniquity. He's a rock in the righteousness of his ways, the truth of his word, the holiness of his proceedings and the rectitude of his nature, all are expressed. He is a rock. His work is perfect. 
for all his ways are judgment. He's a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right he is. That is our God, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. You may have big problems, but you have an infinitely bigger God. All the suffering of this life is temporal, but our Lord is infinite and he is enthroned forever. We see that he will establish his people. Look at verse 28. He establishes um, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Our Lord is about gathering a people to himself, a people who are secure, a people who can rest in his presence, who have their foundation established on their God, on their rock. Yes, in this life, we will experience suffering. In this life, we will experience hardship. But ultimately, the Lord will establish his people. So what's the what's kind of the big idea that we can look to understand this? And it's this, the sovereign savior will rescue his suffering saints. A sovereign savior will rescue his suffering saints. We need to cry out to God and rest secure in him. Maybe you are overcome by loneliness. The king of the universe hears your prayers and he looks on you and calls you friend. The mightiest warrior, our God, great and powerful, has moved toward you. We need to know that as we cry out to God, he will hear us. He will look for and and rescue his people. Look at um, verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that he looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord looked at earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord in, in, and in Jerusalem, his praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. Our Lord has looked down on his holy height to come to us, to rescue us. Maybe you're that young couple uh, experiencing financial difficulty, or maybe you're just experiencing financial difficulty. You know the King of Kings. You know the King who rules over the wealth of the world. All the wealth of the nations are his. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He will provide your every need. Jesus says in Matthew, our father knows our needs before we pray them. Maybe you're that young mom who hasn't slept. The Lord will be your strength. Think of the gift you have to pass on to the next generation, um, to pass on the truth of who God is and the strength found in him. Maybe you've experienced betrayal or hurt. Our Lord tells us he will never leave us nor forsake us. Maybe you have a close friend or an adult child who's walked away from the faith. Keep praying, keep begging for God to save them. He's the one who can open the eyes of the blind. He can turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. 
Maybe you've spent another night in the hospital not knowing the outcome, not knowing what will be the next um, thing you'll have to do. One day you will inherit an imperishable body. You will be moved from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of life and all the suffering and the sickness of this world will be removed and will be cast away forever and ever. And you will get to experience the joy of worshiping the Lord with the other saints free of sin and sickness. In all these sufferings, know you serve a big God. You serve a mighty and holy and just and good God who loves you. Another thing we need to do is we need to move towards community for help. You might've noticed how at the beginning, when the psalmist talks about suffering, it's very much, I suffer. And which is true. We all experience our own suffering. We all experience our own hurt. Uh, My heart is struck down. I forget to eat. I am like a desert owl. But did you notice the last part of the psalm, the remedy? It's that the Lord establishes a people. It's that the Lord makes a kingdom. It's that the Lord looked on his holy heights and sets prisoners free. Our God brought us together for a purpose. Yes, our suffering is personal, but the remedy and the healing we need is in community. It's together as a people of God, as the church of God. This needs to be a place where it's okay to suffer. While your suffering may be personal, I don't think it should be private. And now you do have to be appropriate and you do have to use discretion. But what I'm saying is in times of suffering, don't look to isolate yourself from each other. Look to move towards each other as a secure and established people as children of God coming together to bear one another's burdens, to love one another and pray for one another and care for one another. That's where the answer is found. We should never be embarrassed to share hurt, to share grief with a Christian brother or sister. And when we're the recipient of that, we should move towards that person in love, letting them know that they're a part of one body and one people and they have one king, that we can be together in our suffering. We need to move towards each other. We need to pray for one another. The last thing, we need to prepare the next generation to suffer well. Look at verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Parents, are you teaching your kids that life is sunshine and rainbows and the world exists to make them happy? We need to stop. They need to be they need to be welcomed in to the difficulty of this world. They need to be told about the hostility towards Christianity. If we teach our children that life is all sunshine and rainbows, we sign an early spiritual death note for their life. Because what happens the first difficulty that comes up? Well, that's not what I signed up for. You know, I'm out. I'm moving on. We need to relay stories of God's faithfulness. We need to show them. We need to invite them into the realities of our life, not shield them from them. And certainly we need to do that in an age-appropriate way. But we need to impart the next generation with a theology of the bigness of our God. 
We need to show them that no matter the hurt, no matter the suffering, no matter the pain, their God can do anything. I'll end with this. One song that Olive learned here, I think captures the meaning pretty well. Um, Sometimes you just need a little bit of truth for a little bit of life is the way Pastor Jacobs put it. And I found myself uh, the past couple of weeks just reminded of this. The song goes like this. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong, so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. Let's pray. Father, in the difficulty of this life, thank you that we can rest in a sovereign savior, that our sovereign Lord rescues his suffering saints, that in you, there is a people established. There will be a kingdom free of pain and suffering, that we will be transformed from perishable to imperishable. Help us to rest secure in you. Help us to be together in our suffering, that we would bear one another's burdens, love one another. We pray for people across the world who are suffering. We pray for the gospel to be a bright and burning light in the midst of darkness. Finally, we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.